last week, the, the whole emphasis on prayer just grabbed a hold of my heart. And uh, we, we were talking about uh, the ancient way. And, uh, and for those who weren't here, the, the focus, uh, we, we talked about the... Um, this sort of battle of ideologies in the world around us that, that's just, it's progressed uh, to the point where anxiety is in the hearts of many Christians, especially a school we're starting up and we're thinking about uh, the education system and things that are being, that are being, um, uh, that have just become a part of the curriculum now. And, uh, and, and it's unavoidable. We can't, we can't get away from it because our, our society has changed so much. Families have been redefined. And, and, uh, and in order for there to be less bullying, we've got to let the kids in those schools understand that family doesn't look like the traditional family anymore. And I understand. I understand why those laws are being written and why people uh, want to, uh, to try and make school a safe place for every child. And, and I'm not opposed to that at all. I'm not opposed to school being a safe place. I, I hate bullying. Don't you guys hate bullying? Yes. And I don't want the church to be a bully pulpit either. Uh, I don't want us to stand up here and, 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 uh, and start uh, running our mouths off at all the sin in the world. Uh, you know what? Jesus didn't stand up and preach about everybody's sin, did he? No. Jesus stood up and said, the kingdom of God has come. Rejoice. Repent. But the kingdom of God is drawn near. And I'd rather preach a message about the kingdom of God than a, a, a message against the sin of the world. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Uh, our job is to witness, to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how God can bring dead things back to life again and how he wants to bring dead people back to life again. Those of us who are dead in our sins bring us back to life again. And so I think as a, as a, a faithful representa a representation of the kingdom of God in this community, Living Hope Family Church, needs to have our focus in the right place. At the same time, you know, we, we, we have to be able to teach our children the way, the ancient way. We need to be able to stand firm without apologizing for our theology. You know, we may need to repent of our prejudice, but we should never repent of our theology. Does that make sense? And our theology needs to be articulated in such a way that we understand. And, and I want uh, to do that. But the, 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 the kind of the takeaway last week was when we are confronted by, by um, what we consider to be uh, ideologies that, that, that wage war or are violent against our own faith, our first response must be prayer. It must be prayer. And, uh, and so uh, as a fellowship, I think it's, it's important for us to heed that call again. And uh, it's not that the Lord is, I don't think the Lord is chastising us for a lack of prayer. I don't want us to have this mentality that we've always got to do more to make God happy. God's pleased with us. Can you just go ahead and just breathe a sigh of relief right now? Can you just do that? Just to know that God actually is pleased with you. You know why? Because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, then come on, today is your day. To put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save us. And that's what pleases God. When we stop trying, when we, stop, when we cease from our own efforts to save ourselves and we turn to Christ, that pleases the Lord. And knowing that we are in God's favor then, these other things like prayerfulness and being kind and generous and also being careful to, to bring correction and discipline even within the household of faith. All of these things come out of a, a place of confidence in our relationship with Him. We're not, we're not trying to make God happy or trying to stop making God mad. 
we're going to grow in our faith, and this is going to be a positive momentum, forward movement in the right way. Does that make sense? So um, I want us to be, to be able to see the Scripture for what it is and hold fast to the Scripture even when it flies in the face of what our neighbors around us are coming to believe and, and toting. But we need to do that in a way that's not aggressive, assertive, but not aggressive. We can assert the truth because we know it's truth. But anger and aggression, that has no place here. So uh, to, to that end, I want to talk some more about this ancient way. And uh, we've been talking about the authority of Scripture and how, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of questions about how, how can we know that the Scripture is authoritative and how can we put our trust in that? It's a book that's written by people a long time ago and it's been handed down over the generations by large um, organization, you know, the church, and, and who's to say that it hasn't been manipulated and changed up? I mean, the translations we're reading aren't the original. Uh, they've been translated in our own languages, and I'm sure they've been shaped by uh, cultural norms over the centuries that have been translated. So how do we know we can trust this as authoritative? And, uh, and, and those are important questions for us to ask, but I think the, the most important um, the most important way that you're going to know that the Scripture is authoritative, believe it or not, is going to be a very subjective thing. It's going to be the inner witness inside of your heart. And I know that this may sound like a little bit of a, a scary way to prove that things are true. I'm not, I'm not going to say that's the only way. But I think when it comes down to it, God has given each one of us this measure of himself. And even those who don't believe in God have a measure of God in them. We're all made in the image of God. That's we know from Genesis. We also know that the breath that we breathe comes from Him. It's one thing you can't, you know, what do they say when, uh, if a man is not fast enough to catch his last breath, you know? Um, uh, the breath that we breathe in and breathe out, it's all because God gave us lungs to breathe and the air is His air. So there's a measure of God in us. We can't put that into into ourselves and um and so whether we're believers or not we have a measure of god in us and i think what god has done is he's placed inside of each of us the ability anyway to discern between right and wrong it's it's there now many people are dead in their sins and in all of us were dead in our sins but the holy spirit regenerates us and God's Holy Spirit is coming and He's working in our communities right now. He's working with people around you and me, our neighbors, to regenerate dead hearts. And uh, that's part of my prayer is, Lord, let your spirit move and bring regeneration in our community, in this generation. And, uh, and God makes us alive. And there's this opportunity for us to respond to God. And I think, uh, f although it's a... It's a um, dangerous place to say that we know the truth because of our hearts uh, that has to be qualified on many levels but i think that there is a measure of confirmation of the scripture within our hearts that is undeniable i think the reason why i believe in jesus myself and why i believe his word is not because some expert told me you know, look, here's evidence that it was written X number of years ago and that the translation is faithful. You know what I'm saying? The reason why I can believe the scripture is not even because, essentially, because I can see 
prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New, although that is incredibly helpful and it does lend conviction to my heart. But honestly, the reason I am so confident is because when I trusted in Jesus, my heart came alive. Something happened on the inside of me that I cannot deny. Now you might say, well, Eric, that's, you know, doesn't everybody from every religion share that same, you know, moment of, of exhilaration and so forth? Well, I don't know because I've never been a part of any other religion, so I really can't answer to that. But I can certainly answer for me that not only did Jesus make me come alive to his truth, uh, to the truth, all those years ago, but for nearly 50 years that I've been following Jesus, 48 years or whatever it's been that I'm following Jesus, for all those years, every day of my life, I feel that same thing deep inside of me. There's no question in my heart. I know. There's just a knowing in my knower. How can I, how can I describe that in any other way? And, uh, and I think that that's part of the, that's part of the, the, the assurance of the believer, uh, the way that we know that we've, we've been saved. We, we, we recognize the truth. We hear a voice and we recognize that voice. Jesus said it this way. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Like a shepherd who's well known to his sheep. And I think truth has spoken and my heart has responded. And, uh, and so when the, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day asked him the question, under whose authority are you preaching these things? Who gives you the authority to say this kind of stuff? Who gives you the authority to test our religion and to overturn the tables, essentially? Uh, and Jesus didn't actually answer that question. Not in that moment to them. He, he has most assuredly answered the question, but not in that moment to them. He didn't say, well, the authority that I have is because of such and such. Instead, he asked them a question. And I think that this is a very important question for us to consider. He said to them, by whose authority did John baptize? And, uh, and this hang with me here for a minute. This question that Jesus asked was not about really about John the Baptist, but it was about who gives the authority for the things that you believe. If you are a doubter and you don't know, uh, you say, well, the Bible doesn't have authority for me. I, I'm not recognizing that. Well, then the question is, what gave authority to the things that you believe? The things that you hold fast, that give you grounding, that give you solid ground under your feet, make you feel like you fit in this little world of yours. Uh, what gave authority to that? And when you consider it, uh, the question of authority, of Jesus' authority, or really ought to question the same authority on which you're standing. And if Jesus fails the authority test and the authoritative test, his words fail that test, then I, I would guarantee you that the stuff you're believing can't even hold a candle to Jesus. And I'd say that if you're honest about it, the authority on which you're trusting probably isn't all that sturdy in and of itself. But again, you're not here debating with me. I'm just sprouting words from a pulpit. So. But I'm throwing that question out there to you as well. What gives authority to the things that you believe? Why is this important in this particular sermon? Well, because if we're going to follow the ancient way, we need to believe that Jesus spoke truthfully and showed us the right way. When he said, I am the way, the truth and the life, we need to know that that actually is worth following and that it will get us to the destination of, that we're looking for. And the destination, of course, is the very heart of God. Right? So 
I think as a church, we, you know, we can probably move on from this. We're accepting the word of God as the final authority, as the authority and the final authority. All that God has said, he said to us in Christ Jesus. And it's written right here in the pages of this book. And we're thankful for that. Now, God may say many, many things throughout all eternity, but he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness right here. And so we're, we're okay with that. And I don't need to add to this. And the authority of the church is only authoritative in so much as it is fulfilling and reflecting and glorifying God through his word and the explanation of his word. We interpret the word of God, and that's part of the glory of the church, is to interpret the word of God in the current context, but not change the word of God. Understand it and apply it in our setting. That's the authority that the church has. But as, in so much as the church is following Christ, if we fail to follow Christ and begin to go off track, the church loses its authority. We have no authority on our own. And last week, the illustration that I used was the sun and the moon. The moon has no ability to shine in and of itself. The only shining of the moon is in it reflecting the sun. The sun has all the energy and it has all that light, but the moon has none. It's a dark dead rock and the same thing is true of the church if we're not reflecting god and we're not reflecting christ then we have no authority at all and that's important because it's going to help us as a church us as a fellowship to recognize well where does where does that authority come from look we're an independent church we're a small independent church just go ahead and say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> You're here at the small independent church. You know why? Because you like small independent churches. There are some much larger churches on Cape Cod that are not in independent. They're interdependent. Maybe they're part of bigger denominations and so forth. They have a lot more resource, a lot more people. And you could be there. You really could. And you'd probably be tremendously blessed there. Uh, but you're also tremendously blessed here because God called you right now. This is the place where he wants you to grow. And I'm so excited that you're part of this. Together as a family, we're going to grow in Jesus. Amen. But we're a small independent church. And, you know, I've been talking a little bit about this whole autonomy and heteronomy and theonomy story, right? And you guys are like, yeah, those words, Eric. Those are, what does Jason call them? $20 words. And, um, and you've heard them three weeks in a row now. You're like, can we move on from there? Well, it, it, I will in a minute. But... Um, but the, the truth is that, uh, that I, I told you that the Bible teach us, teaches us, as far as morality is concerned, it teaches us theonomous morality. In other words, God is the one who establishes the morality, not the culture around us and not us ourselves. So it, it's not heteronomous morality. We're not being told by the government or by the larger, broader culture how our morality ought to be. Uh, we're not being taught by ourselves, every man thinking for himself and, uh, and, and governing himself. Uh, yet at the same time, I want to tell you that in God's version, it's not an either or. God's theonomy is he gives us divine command. That becomes the authority by which we live. But we as individuals get to choose to live that out before him. So in a way, God's theonomy actually redeems our autonomy. Does that make sense? Yes. We cannot be truly autonomous ever. And the, the world around us wants to move us towards that. The, 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 the governing ideology of the day is the, is the prominence of self. It's, the, it's more than prominence. It's the, really the glorification, the godhood of every man. And it's, it's, a, it's a dominant theory, and it is, it's all around us. And we have shifted um, in, in the 400 years of the United States. We have shifted from a... From a um, a, just a different ideology that ruled in the world at that time to this this glorification of self 
and that results in us making decisions that, that affect ourselves. It's you only live once kind of morality. And, um, and we recognize that there cannot be a, a utopia here on earth. We've tried again and again and again. Man has tried to build the Tower of Babel time and time and time again. And we fail every time. We want to make ourselves a fortress that is impregnable, but we can't because sin exists in our hearts and we cannot get rid of it. So the autonomy of the self will never actually happen because we are slaves. We are slaves because we gave up our kingship. When God created us in the garden, he made us lords over the earth, but we gave that up because we wanted to know more. We wanted to know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil and be autonomous without God. And on account of that, we have become slaves to the heteronomy of Satan. He tells us what to do. And Romans chapter 7 gives us a firm example of this. And I think every one of us who's read Romans chapter 7 would say, okay, I get it. I, I know this feeling. What does Paul say? He says, I do the thing I don't want to do. And the thing I do want to do, I, I can't do. Why? Because I'm enslaved to this body of sin. You get it? So we will never be autonomous. But only Christ can restore our true autonomy. Only Christ can give us the power and the freedom to actually choose and to choose life. And God wants us autonomous but totally submitted. So this beautiful, this beautiful, what do you call that when, when, uh, when you've got things that, that seem to be opposed to each other and yet they live together? What's that called? It's a, yeah, no, another one. A paradox, thank you. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad you guys are with me. Every now and then I just need you to be my dictionary. Is that okay? So um, a paradox, the beautiful paradox of autonomy and theonomy all working together. Why? Well, because God created you and he made you for a purpose. You are not just, you didn't just emerge from the slime, my beloved friends. Aren't you so glad about that? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't emerge from the slime. That's right. Anyway, um, so this, this autonomy that, uh, that God restores to us is, in fact, witnessed to by the Holy Spirit in us who testifies in us that we are children of God. In fact, if you want to just turn to that beautiful verse, we can. I think it's in, um, uh, well, hold on. Let me just make sure I'm actually on the right page here. I wrote down notes. I always write notes, and then I never preach them. Isn't that dumb? I should really preach my notes. We'd actually get so much further if I preached my notes. <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys called me to be the pastor here, right? I mean, the Lord did, but you guys have put up with me for 20 years, so suck it up. <laughs> okay, let's see. Um, the work of the Holy Spirit, let's find this in Romans chapter 8, 16. And I just, I love this verse, and although I'm sort of taking a little bit out of context, uh, it's not, it's not not horribly out of context for what I'm trying to say. Um, it's just a beautiful recognition of what the Holy Spirit does in us. And, uh, and um, so Romans chapter 8, verse 12 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Actually, this is perfectly in line with what I'm talking about. You, you, didn't, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And look at this, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So remember I started off telling you that really the reason why I believe is because there's something inside of me it just bears witness. And I know the truth. I recognize it. And it's, it's, it's undeniable. And, uh, and for those who, who don't know the truth, uh, I just encourage you, come to Jesus and let him show you how wonderful and how powerful, how beautiful this really is. Um, and your spirit will bear witness. And it's not because some great preacher convinced you or some, some great orator convinced you. It's because something inside of you says, yes, that's what I've been longing for all my life. I thank God for the Spirit at work in us. And so, um, and so this ancient way, uh, as we're getting ready to walk out on the ancient way, I'm thinking about my, my, uh, my recent um, Camino. Uh, Tammy and I, those of you who don't know, we, we spent uh, six weeks, six or seven weeks, uh, walking in Spain this summer. We, we put on backpacks and we walked out, out of France over the Pyrenees into Spain and we walked 500 miles 525 actually across uh, northern Spain to Santiago de Compostela and it was an amazing adventure just absolutely amazing adventure and along the way we learned so many things about pilgrimage it's it's actually it's a it's a pilgrimage for over a thousand years uh, people from all over the world particularly Catholic folks but for people from all over the world have made that uh, that trek uh, in in diligent search of of uh, connecting with with uh, with God, and um, and so this pilgrimage was really, really special for us, and I learned so many things along the way, but one of the things I learned is that I, I, I made a lot of mistakes packing my bag, and uh, you guys have heard this story already, but but uh, I, I, I got so excited for... For a whole year, I was I was spending money and, and buying things. I mean, I was Tammy was was watching all the Amazon packages arrive, you know, week after week, and uh, she's saying, "Haven't you got enough?" And uh, and I said, "No, there's never enough." How many of you ever shopped at REI? Anybody ever shop at REI? You can never get enough of that store. I love that store. Don't give me money and a and a ride to REI because I'll spend it all in one sitting. Anyway, but. Um, I spent a lot of money on things and I put together a lot of stuff and I had it, you know, all weighed out to the tenth of an ounce and I was ready. I had my backpack, had Tammy's backpack ready. And we discovered when we got started on the walk that um, <laughs> we were overprepared. And, um, you know, the, the guide actually told us that, the, the, the study, I mean, the, the, the Camino guide, the book that I had, and uh, all my friends who'd actually walked the Camino said the same thing. They said, you really don't need all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, well, you don't need it, but I might. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I want to use the metaphor and, uh, and say on our Christian walk, as we're walking this, this pilgrimage to Zion, uh, remember, we started off in Psalm 84, and uh, blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Each one of them appears before God in Zion. That's 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 our that's our theme for for this series. And uh, as we started out on this journey, I, I realized we need to pack our bags. We need to know what we've got to take with us on this journey, and that's why I'm focusing on two things. I'm focusing on the authority of God's word because you're going to need the word of God on this journey. But I also want to focus on the very present, very personal uh, work of the Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. We need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit of God. 
And we need to carry that in our backpack, that filling of the Holy Spirit, as it were. The Word and the Spirit, that's what we need for this journey. We need to submit ourselves to the authority of God, and we need to have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit to tell us whether we're on track or not, or if we need to make corrections, and to empower us to walk out this Christian faith with, with miracle-working power. Because I don't know about you, but I've discovered that there are some things in life I just can't do. There are things I can't overcome. There are, there are things that people need that I can't give. And yet Christ has said to me, you feed them. <laughs> we need the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I want us to focus on those. And, uh, and I want to make sure that we, that we are giving uh, ample time in our personal lives to know the Word of God, but to know the Word of God through the intervention of the Holy Spirit at work within us, that we engage with the Word on a personal level through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Make sense? Okay. Now, we've got a couple of minutes, and uh, God is restoring our theonomous autonomy. We've said that. Uh, I read a couple of resources uh, over the last two weeks that I want to I offer you. Uh, with regard to just some of the conversation we had last week with re regard to the transgender um, uh, uh, instruction that is happening on school levels, in kindergartens and elementary school levels and so forth, because, of course, the purpose is uh, that we don't want kids bullied at school and families look different nowadays. Well, we know that that's uh, the idea of the redefinition of family is offensive to us as Christians, but, uh, but I want to make this point very clear to you, that we cannot hold other people to the same covenant who are not entered into that same covenant. We can't hold them to the restrictions of the covenant or the requirements of the covenant if they are not part of that same covenant. There are things that happen in my family that I would never require of you because I don't have that relationship with you. When my kids would speak to me uh, with a certain tone of voice, it didn't matter what they were saying, I would stop them and correct the tone of voice because that was unacceptable and I would say, you need to rethink how you're saying what you're saying. I'll hear you, but I'm not going to hear you right now with that tone because you're communicating something other than the words that are coming out of your mouth. Now, I wouldn't have the liberty to do that in your life unless you gave me, gave me that liberty. There are standards that I have for my family which I would not have for you. Now, the simplicity of that is just take that and just expand it out. We have... We have a, uh, a Christian worldview, and the world has a secular worldview, and very often we have beautiful overlap between our Christian worldview and our secular worldview. Here's some things that the secular worldview around us cherishes that I find really a, a blessing. They cherish the value of individuals. I think that's really, really important. Each person has value. You know what? When the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, issue came out a few years ago during COVID. It just exploded in our in our uh, in our culture. Uh, regardless of the of the organization that calls themselves by that name and all that they stand for, just those three little words, Black Lives Matter. I can say those words with great confidence and say I wholeheartedly agree. 
I agree that everybody's life matters, and particularly if black people have been oppressed, then I want to stand up and say, you know what? Jesus teaches us to, to, to bring justice and to fight for the oppressed and to take care of widows and orphans. And this is pure and undefiled religion, is it not? So if we recognize oppression around us and we don't do anything about it, then we do have to go before the Lord and give an account. How do we respond to that? Well, those are the things we're going to be talking about as we discuss and unpack what the ancient way means in the current culture. But, but just take that one statement, Black Lives Matter, and I would have to say I wholeheartedly agree. All the nuances of that and what that means, well, I think it means a lot to a lot of different people. But these creeds, I can't, the secular world has some of these things, and some of them I agree with. This is what we were talking about, the Venn diagrams overlapping. Some other things that the secular world around us is right now espousing that I actually think fit well within our Christian faith. Taking care of people's economic needs. Now, how we go about doing that? Uh, well, I mean, I'm glad it's not my job to try and figure that out on a governmental level. I think you get a lot of people disagreeing around the table, but I think we all agree that people who are in financial distress need help. And if we're able to help them, I mean, we should. Uh, Jesus didn't say the Good Samaritan should have stopped and asked the fellow, what were you doing on the road to Jericho? You know, and, and uh, how did you get yourself in this mess? And, uh, you know, surely a Jewish businessman like you ought to have known. Travel with, a com you know, with company and uh, what are you doing on your own? No. The good Samaritan just got off of his donkey and tended to that guy's wounds, put him on his donkey, and went and took care of him. And so I think that the lesson for us there is that we ought to be kind-hearted and generous, and we need to be thinking, how can we help people around us whether they deserve it or not? And so I think that in many ways the culture around us, the secular culture, does a better job uh, sometimes than the church does. In, in uh, I say church as in big C, meaning them, not us, right? <laughs> I think we were part of that too. Um, so there are ways in which the culture overlaps, and I'm very grateful for that. But then there are ways in which uh, things happen in my household that I can't demand of them. They don't believe the same thing that I do. So take the abortion issue for, for an example. I believe that abortion is murder. But that's a really harsh statement to make. What have we got people in the congregation here today who have had to go through that awful tragedy and process through that? My statement is just a harsh statement that comes right out there and calls that person a murderer. And they, I don't know the condition of their heart, what their heart, where their heart was when that happened, where their heart is now, that having happened. I, I don't know. I can say categorically that I think that the rights of the unborn child are just as equal. You know, they're equal to the rights of the mother or rights of anybody else. And so I think that taking a life is, uh, is tantamount to murder. But at the same time, I have to qualify that statement. And I have to, I have to say, okay, you know, if I'm going to vote, if I'm going to vote regarding this topic and this issue, I'm going to vote for those who will hold up that, what I believe to be a Christian value, that each breath of life is given by God. And each, even in the womb, before there's a breath of life, there's a heartbeat, and God has given that life to that child. Jesus uh, was, uh, was filled with the Spirit of God even in the womb. John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit of God, could recognize the presence of Christ 
while John the Baptist is in the womb. So we recognize that these are, these are scriptural principles. But, but there's a world around me that doesn't believe the same way that I do. And do I have the right to force them to believe the way I do or to force them out of, uh, you know, of, of having the options to do the things that they do? I don't think that that works. I don't think that I can lord it over them and hope that somehow if I legislate their morality that they're actually going to have a change of heart. I cannot, because I have theonomy and autonomy, I cannot then impose some kind of heteronomy on the culture around me because I want them to feel, or if they don't feel the way I do, they've at least got to live the way I do. That's why prohibition never works. So I'm making all these really big statements, but I think what we have to do is we have to examine what God is telling us to do as a faithful house as for me and my house we will serve the lord you choose this day whom you will serve but as for me and my house we will serve the lord you can read joshua's statement to the people uh in uh, in the book of joshua and uh, and you can see that uh, that beautiful sort of dichotomy that he gives them he gives them a choice between two things but he doesn't force them to do that he just says as for me and my house is what we're going to do if you want to live under, under the shadow of that, uh, then I'm not going to force you. But do understand that God's blessing is restricted to those who have covenant with him. And so here today, I want to say that with all these issues that we're dealing with, um, there is a clear definition, a clear distinction between those who are blessed of God and those who are not. And the blessing of God doesn't look like Material wealth. Because, by the way, the wicked prosper. Tammy and I went out to Nantucket on Friday. We spent the day at the beach. It was very nice. Some friends of ours were visiting from Texas. And we got to uh, go out there and, and just spend the day on the beach and eat yummy food and have barbecue at night. It was great. And, uh, you know, like Texas-style barbecue was great. And, uh, but as we were going in and out of the harbor in, uh, in uh, Nantucket, on Nantucket, there was a huge boat, massive, massive super yacht that I think belongs to Herb Chambers. And uh, it was, somebody said that anyway, it's called Excellence. It was massive, massive boat. And it was just a display, in your face display. You know what? This is what it means to really prosper. But I looked at that and I said, okay. And it is, you know, one could covet that. Maybe, I don't know, until we knew the details. But one could covet that, or one could at least say, I wish I was on that boat today, instead of the High Line. But, uh, <laughs> it is true that the wicked prosper. And I'm not saying that Herb Chambers is wicked, so maybe I should retract that. But it is true that the wicked prosper, and that the world around us prospers. And that is no way for us to define what the blessing of the Lord is. Certainly, the Lord taking care of our needs is a blessing, we would all agree. Being able to pay our bills is a blessing. But that is not the way we determine the blessing of the Lord. Job's life is a classic example of the turnaround, the upside-down version of God's favor. Because Job has a lot of bad things happen because God is really, really happy with Job. You know, God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the world. So how do we determine God's favor? Well, that's an important question. We'll have to come to that later. We don't have time for it today except to say this, that the 
presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that gives us a peace that passes understanding is one of the primary ways that we know we're walking in the favor of God. One of the primary ways that I know I'm walking in God's blessing is having that peace from God. Knowing that I am at peace with God. That my relationship with Him is not broken because I'm not walking in some kind of hidden sin. That's a peace which all the money in the world can't replace. I could be poor as a church mouse and have that peace with God and I'll be walking happier than the richest man on the planet. So we've got to recognize that there are, there are two ways here. One results in blessing and one does not. Even though it may be accompanied by riches and wealth and fame and opulence. I want the blessing. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So I can't fight what the world out there is trying to establish as their way in the hopes that if I make them do it my way, the world is going to get saved. What does that mean? What am I actually saying? Well, what I'm saying is I think we need to be careful not to become politicized as a fellowship. I think we need to be really careful not to find ourselves launching out there into the metaverse uh, with our vitriol, with anger, with frustration. Because ultimately that really is hatred against the wrong thing. By all means, we hate sin. And it is okay for us to hate sin. Sin put Jesus on the cross. And whose sin? My sin. So yeah, I'm allowed to hate sin, but it's my sin that I hate. And when other people are in sin, I've got to look beyond their sin and see that there is a soul desperately lost who needs to be saved. And Christ has come to do that very thing. If we begin to be politicized as a church, then we will no longer see our key audience as potential brothers and sisters, as children of God, that God has gone out to rescue. Instead, we'll see them as the enemy and we'll begin to fight and we'll begin to get angry and we'll separate ourselves from them. And you know what's going to happen? Retrition, my friends. We're going to become smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less relevant in our culture. So how do we walk this tightrope? How do we make this balance? Well, we do it by upholding righteousness in the family, in this family, by letting everybody know it's not okay to be sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you're married. Because the Bible clearly shows us that what we're doing there is violating God's order, His structure. We're violating one another. We're violating the, we're violating the principle of value. We're taking something for ourselves instead of waiting and giving to God. We're not worshiping God in this act. And as a result, we're giving room for Satan. And as a, as a, as a church, we need to be able to say to those who are in that situation, listen, we love you. But if you continue to live like that, you can't be a part of the fellowship. We will welcome you if you're struggling and you are turning your heart back to Christ. And you know what? You struggle in that sin, but that sin is overcoming you. Hey, listen, let's work together. Let's work, walk our way through this. 
I, I know what that temptation felt like. I remember that, and I hate the fact that, 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 uh, that I, we stumble and fall. But we can't stay there. And so for the person who says, you know what, it doesn't matter. The church should just accept me the way I am. And by the way, it's, uh, the whole world works like this. So why are you making this a big deal, Eric? I'm not making it a big deal. You're making it a big deal. You're saying that this is more important than your obedience to Christ. You're saying that this lifestyle you're choosing is more important than your obedience to Christ. And so as a faithful brother or sister in Christ, I need, we need to be able to go to those people and say, hey, this is going to eat you alive. Step out of this sin and repent and return to the Lord. But I can't do that with my neighbor down the street who doesn't even know Christ and is not interested in relationship with Jesus. Instead, I reach out to them with love, with grace, and I look for a way to show them that Jesus loves them anyway. Just as Jesus loves the people in the church anyway, also. If I say to somebody in the fellowship, hey, your persistence in this sin is going to make us have to treat you like you're an outsider, that's not a rejection. That's the truth. And that's actually an invitation. Because the way we treat outsiders is we treat them with grace, don't we? And we look for ways to convince them that Jesus is the better way, the only way. And so for the person who persists in their sin, I've got to recognize they don't have a viable relationship with Jesus Christ. John wrote about it in his letter. You, you love First John, don't you? And you keep bringing us there, but you're probably not going to read those verses right out here in church where John says, if you persist in sin, the love of the Father is not in you. I'm like, yeah, wait, we'll let Eric deal with that verse. <laughs> we'll get there. I want to make sure we stay on the path. And because I love you, and because Christ loves you, I'm not going to sugarcoat the fact that the way is hard not going to sugarcoat that when you engage in willful sin as a believer, you pay the consequences. You might not pay them right away, but you will pay the consequences. And I want to save you from that. I can't make you follow Jesus, but I will tell you that the consequence of following sinful behavior and rejecting Jesus is you will not walk in the blessing of God and you will not have his peace inside. So I've got to make that clear in church, but we can't go out into the world with that same kind of demand because they aren't there yet. Does that make sense? Okay. So much more. Let's just finish with this. Romans 8, verse 18. This is just following on in the book of Romans from the part where we talked about the Holy Spirit bearing witness. 
Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about it in context of the narrow way. Tough road. The sufferings, not worth comparing to the glory (laughs) that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Grieve indeed, my brothers and sisters, the condition of the world around us. Grieve it. Mourn. Groan inwardly. But remember this. The new creation is coming. Grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And our hope that is seen is not hope. For he who hopes, for who hopes for what he sees, but we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's remember that. Let's remember that. As we grieve and mourn the world around us, let's remember these verses. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You hear the language? God wants us changed out of darkness into light. Come on, church. This is what we are called to. Let's be faithful to the Lord in all of our walk. Let's be faithful. Let's walk away from that, that, that besetting sin. Let's walk away from those things that hold us captive and recognize the blessing of the Lord awaits us and the redemption of our bodies also. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that the call is crystal clear. You have called us out of and into and we are to walk humbly but intently. Lord, I pray that these things in our hearts that convict us we wouldn't easily dismiss we'd listen to your inner witness we'd listen to you holy spirit as you shape us and fashion us that we may actually bear the image of christ lord as a church we want to be faithful we want to promote your kingdom but we will not compromise your statements your words your life your truth We will not compromise that in order to gain popularity. Papa, help us. Give us courage. Let us speak life.
just a little aside, uh, salvation is a beautiful and blessed gift. And uh, the Bible tells us in simple terms, it, it can be fleshed out in a more complicated way, but the most simple way to say it is when we come to Jesus, we repent and we believe. We repent and we believe. And, uh, and that's the foundation of salvation. Jesus has come to save us, and he's the only one who can. If you need salvation this morning, and you know it, your heart is just, your heart is just overwhelmed, and you know you need God, then my friend, repent and believe.